0: Welcome. This is season three of the Daily Market, where we've decided to do something a little special. Earlier this year, startup junkie and marketplace master Ty Wolf-Jones, hey Ty, approached me and pitched us the idea of instead of interviewing founders and marketers, why don't we dive into the world of marketplaces, the VH1 behind the music of marketplaces, or what is the making of the sausage of a marketplace? Ty could bring the operations point of view, and I could bring the marketing point of view, and we could make some marketplace magic or maybe a little more like marketplace mayhem
1: so join us for the series where we've spoken to over a dozen marketplace leaders and pioneers from uber convoy bellhop doordash rover but also some rising stars and marketplaces from multiple countries venture capitalists and more you're not going to want to miss an episode
0: ladies and gentlemen who is alex rodriguez Alex is the general manager of Abodu, the premier dadu company. But what's a dadu? Well, stay tuned and you'll find out soon. Before Abodu, over the course of four and a half years, Alex worked at some pretty impressive marketplaces. That's why we, we had to get him on the show. He was partnership lead and operator at Uber Eats for Seattle and Portland, and then regional marketing office manager at Bungalow, a co living space marketplace. Very interesting. Alex holds a bachelor's degree from an American college in Greece. Yes, those exist, which you're going to hear more about soon. This conversation was a pure delight. Alex comes from a pretty unique background, and it, that actually brings a very key perspective to marketplaces. What do you think, Ty?
1: Yeah, I think this episode is going to be particularly valuable for those that want to be operators in these marketplaces or build out these regional city-based marketplaces because Alex really brings a perspective of the general manager, what it is to build a market on the ground from the ground up, whether it's their teams, their programs, those partnerships that you have to do the operations, et cetera. I got a chance to work with Alex in my past life, and he just uh, brings a ton of energy, ton of innovation to what he does, um, and he's someone who is going to bring great perspective to what it is to run a marketplace on the ground. We also dive deep into studying living abroad and how important that is to him. Equine therapy, what's that? Stay tuned. You'll learn why that's important in Alex's life. Operating a three-sided marketplace, getting your hands dirty, building partnerships, building supply and demand as a general manager, and more. So please, if you like this, which we think you will, you can like and subscribe, of course, but we really want you to leave a comment, leave a review tell us what you think, ask us a question, etc. We'd love to hear from you. And we do think you're going to dig this. So stay tuned.
0: Hey, Alex, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thank you, Jacob. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here.
0: So this is Marketplace Mayhem, where we're showing how the sausage is made as how Ty puts this sometimes. And I, I, I call it it's the VH1 behind the music of marketplaces. I I, I personally am really passionate about a bodu because i'm in the process of trying to buy a house and i'm I'm getting close to it and it's it's for it to become a rental income so i i think i could one day be your i could one day be your customer uh Let's do it. <laughs> we'll be yeah we'll be in touch uh so we thought we'd start with the conversation with something a little different so what was it like going to school in greece uh and and maybe this will lead to nicely into it seems like You have a passion for travel. You worked in the travel industry, different cultures, you know, four different languages. Tell us more about going to school in a different country.
2: For sure. So it really just kind of starts off with my background a little bit. My mother is Italian. My father's Puerto Rican. I grew up, you know, I'm second generation American. So for me, these European cultures or just foreign cultures in general are very close to home. And when I was going to college, I just kind of knew that the American college thing just wasn't my thing. I knew I always wanted to go abroad and I knew it was, I wanted to experience a culture that I had absolutely no clue about, (laughs) none whatsoever. Um, And I had a passion for art history and archeology. span So everything just kind of blended together in a really organic way. And I chose Greece. Um, I'd never been there before. I did not speak the language. I applied to the school and the first time I saw it was the first day of orientation
0: (laughs) and greek seems like a pretty hard language to learn because it it has visually the letter system is totally different
2: visually yes but it's not like the asian languages or the asian scripts right where for me i find those to be incredibly difficult at least if you memorize the shape in greek you know what the sound is greek is very phonetic Hmm. so no matter how it's spelled you know how it sounds so you can pronounce it um but apparently, I found Greek to be incredibly easy, but apparently it has been voted harder than Mandarin. Hmm. And oh, wow. I, 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 for the life of me, cannot believe that.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to learn a language right now. I've been for a couple of years and it's a Slavic language, but it's a, it's Czech, but it's it does not look as hard as a different Slavic language like Russian, which yeah. I, I, I think they both are intimidating just by the way they look.
2: Yeah, Cyrillic. They kind of branch off from that original branch of language. That's my nerd in me.
0: <laughs> so so what was it like going And it was the full four years was in Greece?
2: Yeah, full four years. I started freshman to senior. Um, that was probably... Of all of my background in the years uh, that, I, that have brought me to this point, I would say that that has been the most transformative period of my life. 18 years old to have your parents drop you off in a foreign country where you don't know anyone or speak the language... My parents were losing their mind, but right. I was just excited to finally get an opportunity to build myself quite literally from the ground up. This was a, the Alex hmm. that I got people to see that I was able to build for myself, you know, even before I knew who I was, right? 18 years old, you're a child, <laughs> but um, it was fantastic, you know, being able to study art history and archaeology in the country where it began, you know, my, my classroom wasn't the study hall it wasn't a projector it was walking through the acropolis walking through the agora and because all of these teachers were you know local archaeologists and within the community we were able to get behind the rope and get to experience it from a way that was completely beyond like completely different from the average tourist so it, it was completely invaluable and then being in europe and having the proximity of all those other countries that are a 20 euro flight away you know, you can go to the, Louvre. you can go to, you know, the British Museum, you can go to all of these museums that have artwork that my whole life I'd seen in a book. So it, it was really, really transformative. And also Greece itself, culturally, it changed me. Uh, hmm. We have a word in Greek, it's gefi. And your gefi is that like, it's your spirit, it, but it's that <laughs> thing that you know excites you. It's that fire that's inside of you. Mm. And um, I, had, I, I ignited my geffy. I it turned right. me alive. It taught me how to live, how to relax, how to have fun, how to really just let those character traits that make you happy and make the people around you happy really shine through.
0: Wow, <laughs> everything you're saying I can relate to. I, I studied abroad for a little bit in Norway, and there it was hard because it was wintertime and I kind of went through this, like, felt like a rite of passage of depression <laughs> and then returning home and feeling like I found like this, 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 the, the geffy, like, I, I felt like I had this fire and I feel like I still, I still, I have some of the flame now still. So that's, that's really powerful here. It sounds like it was transformative because you got to write and live to your own script at a relatively young age, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, there was always one version of me that existed, you know, for a very long time, you know, there was a perception of me, and I was different, I stood out, and I was either, you know, I had promoted it, or I was subject to it, right, Mm. until I graduated from high school. Finally, when you go to college, this is the opportunity for you to truly develop the person that you want to be, or at least portray that person to everyone around you. And for me, it was like, you're on the other side of the world, man. You can literally be anyone you want right now. And it was great. It was like having a blank canvas. The hard part, I will say, is coming back, was coming back to the States. That was very difficult. Reacclimating back to this culture is
0: (laughs) difficult. (laughs) One particular was hard about it. What comes to mind when you say that?
2: Greeks have a very, and I mean, I'm pretty sure that this is well known, but Greeks have the mentality of work to live, whereas Americans live to work. They sit at cafes, they take long times at dinner, you know, they don't order individual entrees. It's a bunch of plates that go into the middle of the table because it's not about you going to this place and eating it and having the experience all to yourself. It's about sharing that community and the people that are around you. and to now come to a country where smartphones also hit Europe much later. Mm -hmm. So to then come back to a a country where the iPhone was just starting to really bubble up and have people sitting at a table on their phones the whole time, it was just mind blowing to me, mind blowing. And also, I mean, like to be really candid, when I moved to Greece I was completely blown away like they smoked in hospitals I went to visit
3: <laughs> a friend's
2: grandmother and an ashtray on her of the table the doctor walked in with a cigarette it was right. just it was a, com- a, a a complete cultural reset for me and mm. I just found it so entertaining Oh
0: that's that's phenomenal <laughs> I Yeah I, I the the dishes thing like eating at a restaurant I feel like in America we're very that logical is not very that's logical not- brain. It, it's like completing the dish. It's like I order my dish, oh. it comes to me, I eat it all. I put my mm-hmm. fork and my spoon in a certain way to signal that I'm done. We get the bill, we walk out of here. It's like it's it. Maybe it doesn't have to be such a straight lace narrative, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and there are even some people here in the states that are like, no, you can't have anything that's on my plate. E-
0: yeah, yeah. Right, and that's right. like
2: exception at
1: all. Yeah, yeah.
2: Now um, the sharing yeah.
1: thing is pretty interesting, like. Big, big place. I didn't even think about that. But um, yeah, obviously a, a cultural thing, right? We believe in the individual here in America. Very, Dinner very takes much, four uh,
2: hours, you know. You're there wow. for over an hour at a restaurant that and we're just like, here's your bill. No rush. Right,
1: right. <laughs> no rush.
0: <laughs> I love those restaurants where it's the five-course Italian meal. And I know they have that in in Greek culture too. I I, I, yeah. I, I always want to go to those places over mm. the typical American restaurant. Uh, so, Alex, we saw that you volunteered with Forward Stride, kind of to go on a, a on different different story, uh, and and it looks like it was a a center where it was a form of therapy through horse care, right? Yep. How how was that? How did you get involved in that?
2: So, equine therapy is recognized. There are certifications for it. There is hmm. you know medical paths for it. They the, the documentation really speaks for itself. It is incredibly transformative. Um, I'll explain. But I got to a point in between my career at Delta and at Uber where I was really missing that time working with horses. So I used to compete in horseback riding in oh, wow. high school and college. So oh, wow. I'm used to being around horses. I absolutely love them. I think I respect them. I think they're one of the greatest beasts on this planet. They have such a capacity for kindness and understanding that is really just inspiring as a human. But um, I needed to do something. I was getting into a rut and I needed to do something that made me happy. And I needed to scale back and said, what makes you happy? And I said, I love working with horses. So I started looking for opportunities, uh, kept my ear to the ground bumped into this girl at starbucks who was riding riding boots and breeches and i like swarmed her <laughs> and he was like where do you ride right and she told me oh no i'm an instructor at this therapy facility out in beaverton um this is what we do and i said do you need volunteers and she looked at me like every day <laughs>
3: wow. sign
2: up and I I signed up as a volunteer, I got a call, they looked at my background, and they were like, Are you sure you really want to like muck out stalls and work with, you know, tacking up the, the horses, there's no riding involved. And I'm like, No, this is perfect for me. It's just a really great opportunity for me to work directly with the horse, you know, I just to get that feeling of being back in a barn again. Nice. What I learned was so much beyond that. Um we we specialize with. Uh, <laughs> Is that a horse? I have a puppy. I have a puppy. <laughs> have a puppy. <laughs> Mini horse. <laughs> I um, got to experience just the exact power of what equine therapy can do. Uh, so primarily, we worked with um, children and young adults with cognitive mm-hmm. and physical disabilities,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and utilizing equine therapy as a as a form of as a form of therapy. Horseback riding as a form of therapy it teaches independence where you know a lot of them don't get that independence in life they are they're guided and there's guardrails in almost everything that they do and uh teaches them independence it teaches them responsibility it also um it, it really builds up that confidence to be able to do something uh on their own but beyond that it was for me it was the magic of seeing the the physical you know transformation of what it can do i don't think a lot of people realize just how physical horseback riding is right. you see somebody up there and you're just like oh that's fun you are engaging almost every single muscle group in your body and trust me if you ride as long as we do during a day you'll feel it the next day and the day after that just right.
3: muscles when you're riding
2: wow. so there were a lot of children that maybe were not developing in a way of you know Certain aspects of their body were not developing or mm-hmm. just to be able to see these muscles get that constant work mm-hmm. and then to be able to develop and build out that strength that otherwise would not have you know, it would have taken forever to accomplish. I just say the rap the rapidity, the rapid nature of the transformation that I saw in such a short amount of time really pushed me to just be completely blown away. It was wild. It was
0: Thank you. You're You're really nice to listen to.
2: (laughs) I appreciate that.
0: (laughs) Sorry, what were you going to say in regards to it?
2: No, I I think that was all. Broke your thumb.
1: When did you get started with horses? You said you grew up, did you grow up horseback riding? So not my whole
2: life. I grew up in New Jersey and uh, central New Jersey. And there is a county kind of, it's called Watchung Reservation. And it kind of makes me cringe. It's not a native... It, you know, it's not a first uh, world. It's not a first people's reservation. Right. It's called watch reservation. I'm sure it was at one time. But uh, it's operated by the county. And there are all these trails. It's huge. Hmm. All of these trails inside. And I lived right by it. And my dad and I used to go in and we do, used to do a lot of hiking. This is around 13, 12 years old. And my dad and I were on a trail. And we started seeing like, horse refuse and we started seeing like the, you know the hoof prints in the ground and we're like oh my god people riding horses through here we knew people used to do it in central park but we're, we're like right. wow that's wild and then as we got closer we started smelling the horses and my dad's like let's go check it out so we went and we checked it out and we were just watching them practice and there were people on horseback jumping over five foot six foot fences uh wow. it's, it's show jumping And I remember my jaw hit my chest and I just looked at my dad and I was like, I want to do that. (laughs) That's what I want (laughs) to do. And then my dad like seizing on an opportunity cause I was never really athletic (laughs) seizing on an opportunity. we ran into the office, signed me up for summer camp and that was it. That was the end of that.
3: Yeah. I had it
2: in my, it, it was in my blood. It, I the the speed in which I grew in leveling it just came naturally.
1: Hmm. Nice, because so all the through high school from yeah. from twelve thirteen on you were riding mm-hmm. horses.
2: Yeah. Wow. wow. As much as I could. Last year I took um, when we had that little window where we were able to do things in COVID mm. during the summertime. I took an intro to polo uh, clinic oh. at the Seattle Polo Club down in Enumclaw and. Wow. That was a wild experience.
1: How was it? Yeah, I was going to say, How was it? Like, terrifying. That seems like a different skill. Yeah. <laughs> different
2: set of skills. Ter- absolutely terrifying. I had never been on a horse that went that fast. They're all thoroughbreds. So for me, wow. I had never been on a horse that fast, um, whilst also needing to maintain your balance, your leaning mm-hmm. over, and angle mm-hmm. that's terrifying 45 degrees, you know. And then you have got a mallet and you're trying to steer and everyone else is going at that speed around you. And it, it's just there's so many different components around it. Um I still I I would love to get back into it. And then there's a lot of work involved, but uh that yeah. experience was wild. Then being able to see different forms of equitation are really exciting. Horses are wild in what they can learn.
1: Very cool. Do they run into each other in polo?
2: So you Hmm. don't really want to go for like a direct check. That could be a foul, but you know, you can kind of bump, you can bump. Uh, You got to be careful. Like my horse
0: into your horse or like, yeah,
2: if you want to get somebody off. So basically the most important rule in polo is that you can't come from offside of the trajectory line of the ball. You can't come from outside and try and hit the ball. Everyone has to uh, be in the line of the ball. Uh, so when somebody has the right of way to go get the ball, somebody from the left, so it's usually two opposing teammates that are kind of uh, on one another. Yep, yep. Somebody from you know the left-hand side can kind of either hook your mallet or oh. they can kind of try and move you out of the way so then you have the right of way and then that person has to come back to the line and go uh, forward. So the minute you deviate off that line, you're-
1: Losing you to time, back into it. yeah. And you lose it right away.
2: Mm-hmm. In that yeah. way, there's a lot of just little rules that are in there. I, I was I was blown away.
0: Yeah. Well, riding horses seems like, a, like you mentioned a very it's a physical sport. You build a lot of strength. Mm-hmm. Figuratively, working in startups is a physical sport. So <laughs> how, how, how'd you how'd you get involved in startups? Well,
2: uh, in the beginning of Eats, we were a very small team. We were very intimately working together. There were three of us that sat. Um, on a team that sat in Portland specifically. But uh, we had more of an operations team that was in San Francisco. And we really just all worked together all the time. And there was this closeness. And I tell this to everyone, when I'm interviewing a potential report, I think about and I say, my team, I want it to be like a pack of wolves. I want us all circling around or playing rugby. I, I keep saying I hope that it's an actual rugby reference. But when we're running down the field and someone has the ball, I want them to be able to have the faith that that lateral pass is going to be caught by your teammate.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And there was not one moment at Uber where that did not happen, especially on my team. Mm-hmm. I, there was a level of trust and just coordination that happened, mentorship that inspired me and really forced me to raise myself to a bar that um I never really thought that I could hit. So once I left Uber to kind of gain more experience and get myself out there um, and learn more, and get more responsibility, uh, I started. I naturally gravitated towards the startup. You know, mm-hmm. I missed that fast pace, like run at all costs, grow at all costs. You know, scale, scale, scale it's exciting. It, it, it really does become kind of addictive at some point. So mm-hmm. the downside of that is once you start to scale, and once it starts to, you know, level off and plateau, all of a sudden, you're not getting that hit anymore. So then the next startup <laughs> comes, and then the next startup comes.
3: So it's, yeah,
2: that's really, that's it for me, I think, um, especially when it comes to operations and being able to flesh out a market. Uh, it's, it's that, it's that climb that really is exciting.
1: Cool.
0: It was one of the things
1: I like to, sorry, I'm going to jump in. Yeah, marketplace mayhem. You know, we're talking a lot about marketplaces here. And I I use this term and it's interesting. Jacob asked me about this term before of marketplace dynamics. And, you know, I I talk about this. I mean, it's in all businesses in in a lot of different ways, but obviously companies like Uber and, and Uber Eats dealt with this kind of directly. But I do want to like, one of the things I like to point out is the, is Uber Eats, like how, you know. What they call a three-sided marketplace, from your perspective, mm-hmm. you obviously work close to the to the to the Uber team as well as I'm sure your your team. What is the difference between a three-sided marketplace and a two-sided marketplace?
2: So with a three-sided marketplace, there is, I would say, an internal function, and then there are two branches that are dependent on one another in order to move forward, right? So the driver side at Uber would be that one that dealt with the, the riders, then the other would be Eats dealing with rest breaking off there dealing with you know um restaurant partners drivers and customers so you're serving essentially two different customers that are somewhat the same but mm-hmm. that supply that exists between the two are transferred between which is really exciting i think i thought that that was awesome at uber
1: and then on the eat side i mean you kind of had two suppliers on that in that in that definition as well right you got your drivers but then you needed the restaurants as well mm-hmm. how did you guys think differently about those two parts of the of that of that marketplace
3: so
2: the rider the driver was really simple right we just started poaching ride, rides right yeah. we work with the driver side of the business and we'd reach out to them and we'd start seeing what our you know what our capabilities were to be able to share that supply always being cognizant of the fact that all the supply that you take from drive from rides uh is one less customer that can be served you know on the ride side of the business so mm-hmm. then forcing us to develop ways to say how are we going to generate our own eat supply but um On the lens, from the lens of the restaurant partner, uh, that was just exciting Uh, for me, just because I started in Portland and I was very, very deep in Portland restaurants. Um, I would, when I, especially when I was flying, my roommate and I, we were super passionate about it. We would go out to eat almost every night that we were in town and not flying, lunch, Mm. breakfast. There are so many restaurants that I tried in Portland that I knew like the back of my head. And um being able to have this opportunity, I was on the restaurant partnership side with the restaurant, so the SMB Mm -hmm. side of Eats. Mm -hmm. And being able to have that relationship with a small business owner and really sell them on how this is going to affect the growth of your business. And it's almost as if it's not really free, but it's marketing in a different form, you know. Uber is in the hands of almost everyone Mm. and to be able to open that up and see an opportunity at each and you're like, what's this? And you open it and then you see this list of restaurants. It, it, you know, it's it's a marketing platform as well. So uh, really just selling that value prop of being able to really get your name out there, your products out there. Because when people order your food and have it delivered to your home, when they're out in the street, they're like, what are we going to do? And they look up restaurants on their phone. They're like, Oh. I ate at this restaurant on Uber Eats. Let's go eat there. The food was the food was dope. Like let's do that, and it brings people in house. Then, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it it had a really great value prop in the beginning. It was hard. Don't get me wrong. That was incredibly difficult. We started at the end of 2016, just before Delete Uber, just mm-hmm. before Susan Fowler's article, <laughs> just before with Travis. Mm-hmm. Like that was a rough year. And especially to try and sell a product um, with kind of an uncompany image like that at the time,
3: that was um, difficult.
1: Sure. So before we jump into that a tiny bit, I and we won't go deep. I just want to understand, I think even before that, though, for the restaurants, I think there was this value prop, but there was some, I mean, you guys had to be on the ground and talk to these restaurants and sometimes convince them. Like restaurant owners are busy. They're they're overwhelmed with their current business. Um, what did it take to really show them that value prop, show them that marketing pitch that you were just talking about?
2: Uh, so before Eats, like you know, was um, the Uber lunch. I can't remember what it was called in the very beginning where uh, Uber, what Uber Eats was in the, before it became Uber Eats. Yeah. It was basically on demand. That Uber food. instant
1: product or whatever. Instant, right? it was, yeah. Yeah. It,
2: yeah. And it was basically pre-made food that was in the back of a car and they just delivered it out as lunch. Right. So from that moment forward, there were cities that had already started to begin the transformation into Uber Eats. You were able to show the numbers. You will, were, we were, were able to show the metrics of how these cities were performing and how these average restaurants were growing. You're we very fortunate in our region that you know, as a smaller field team and a city team that we had those closer cities to be able to pull the, that data from and to be able to show restaurants. Yeah.
1: So data was able to to talk to these small business owners. They were able to see it. What happened to the ones that maybe didn't see it so much? Like where, where did those guys, how, how did you have those conversations? I'm sure you didn't. They usually, you ended, you yeah,
2: they usually ended with somebody just kind of scoffing and being like, food delivery from an app that'll never happen (laughs) and then like hit the road and i would just leave and say you know what this avenue is always open i we won't close this we'd love to have you on the platform but obviously we're not here to strong arm anyone it's a numbers game once you really get I, i won't get too deep in that but you know with very almost delivery platforms suffer from the same things right who's paying for this uh Mm -hmm. is it is it the customer um how much are we you know what commission or fee are we taking from the restaurant what is getting passed on how is this you know what is pulling from this revenue that we have generating inside of our market you know Mm
3: -hmm. there's a lot
2: that's Mm -hmm. going on there and it's really about it's a numbers game at the end of the day and sometimes those numbers just did not pan out for restaurants the margin of a restaurant is so terrifyingly low Mm -hmm. that you know even a half a percent, even a percent kind of makes a very lasting difference. So,
1: yeah. So you had to really show your value um, for sure to these guys. Yeah. And then you did, you, 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 you admitted that you were there during this kind of tougher time of the Mm -hmm. marketing of the overall brand. Um, Mm -hmm. Here you have all these relationships with these other small businesses locally. You know, how did you maintain those relationships and, and, and salvage what you could there?
2: It was a matter of really just being present and answering questions, being communicative, right? Being open mm-hmm. and transparent with them. Don't give canned responses. They don't want to hear PR responses. You know, they mm-hmm. the, these are your business partners. They want to be told straight, tell me what's going on and what's going to happen here. Um, and that's always something that I brought into my business practice, mm-hmm. right? I've always talked to people very directly, very bluntly. I, You know, I'm originally from New Jersey. Like I said, we the filter is very hard. So yeah. I, I've always had that kind of relationship with my business partners. And I hope that that is what respected, you know, would help to build that level of respect between us. Sometimes it didn't always go well, right? Sometimes that conversation did not go well. And, mm-hmm. you know, we had to make difficult decisions to part ways. But especially in the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. we, we really mm-hmm. were trying to prove, we were trying proof of concept, right? And that's always scary. And that's always difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, as we started to generate that, that, that business. And as more and more people started to reach out to us in order to join the mm-hmm, platform, mm-hmm. that's when things just really started to get super exciting.
1: Yeah. You knew you'd turn the corner and show that Finally. value in a different way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and then you kept at it, right? So, you know, obviously you went through some, uh, a key periods of Uber. We all know, um, today the story of Uber and, and the success that it still is. Um, uh, and, and and the rocket ship that it was, like you mentioned a minute ago, of kind of going, mm-hmm. but then you jumped into other things, Wrench, um, Bungalow, uh, and now you're there. What have you been able to, these are all companies that have marketplace dynamics. They may, they're they not mm-hmm. the same as Uber or Uber Eats, um, but they all have a very similar marketplace dynamics. What, what were you able to really pull out of being on that rocket ship ride, going through that brand crisis? Um, and taking into your other uh, gigs since then, what are your t- key tips and tricks there?
2: You know the, the you know canned responses are always being like, dive deep into the data. You know the <laughs> customer always comes first. I can tell you like a million and one these tech you know pillars of sure. you know of what they have on the on the wall when you walk in. But for me, um, the thing that I learned the most was roll up your sleeves. Cuff up the bottoms of your pants and get ready to be knee deep in it. Because, you know, sometimes you're going to have to be the one to make this thing move. I le- had to learn how to be scrappy. I had to learn how to be unafraid of getting dirty. Cause, Uh cus- You know, our photographer would no show and the restaurant manager <laughs> would be flipping out because he just made 30 dishes that are oh now geez. not going to be photographed. I would grab my camera, my SLR, I'd hop in an Uber, I'd run over to the restaurant. And because I knew what our brand guidelines were, I just take photos of the food, I'd photo edit them, I'd get them up into the menu. You know, it was moments like that, where we had to be scrappy, and we had to think smart and fast and on our feet. And again, that just really goes to me loving the people that I work with, just because it was just really great.
1: Everybody was doing that. So tell us a little bit about Bungalow. That was another one that was interesting on your resume, um, what they did and and who you were there.
2: So Bungalow is an alternative housing company. They specialize in co-living. They essentially repurpose single family homes that are on the market for rent and then sublet out the rooms. Uh, It's a really, really cool opportunity for young professionals that are new to a city to be able to afford to live in the city, right? Like, you're 22 years old and you're fresh out of college there's no way you're getting a six-bedroom house on capitol hill right like (laughs) that just does not exist or a home in magnolia so it's it it really gave them an opportunity to get into the city easy commuting you know easy commuting accessibility uh and also be with a group that are similar demographic you know similar Mm. age range so Mm. they. They worked at what my job was in the beginning was a community manager. So for me, it was to be, to be able to foster that sense of community organically. How are we going to build this without sending out a letter being like, all of you need to be friends, 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 friends? Like, how are we going to organically build this sense of community in a friend group within a home, but not just within the home, within the community in the market as a greater whole? So I also held events at various different venues. Uh we went to bars, we went to museums, we did mm-hmm. really, really fun things, glass blowing where people from various different homes were able to come and they were able to meet. We've had bungalow weddings, we've had bungalow wow. babies, we've had people that are still dating. We've I mean, we've we've had it all. And you know, yeah. people who are still living together in their own apartment outside of bungalow, you know? Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm being able to experience that culture and that community aspect was really fantastic on a local scale. Um, COVID definitely forced the company to pivot.
3: Mm.
2: Uh, I, I was still at bungalow during COVID, um, forced the company to pivot, um, community and events obviously was not something right. that was happening.
3: <laughs> right, right. So,
2: um, I pivoted, right. I, I went into operations. I took on not just the supply side of the business, but also demand. right? I -hmm. I was in charge of the demand and I took on the supply. Mm -hmm. So previously I was working with capturing leads, signing Mm -hmm. leases, converting them, getting them into the homes, monitoring occupancy, uh, NPS. But then I brought supply into the mix, managing the portfolio of the homes, managing their onboarding, making sure 3PL is delivering the furniture,
0: You know, getting all
2: of the homes up to the bungalow standards that we can start funneling all of that supply into the home. I started off doing that strictly for Seattle. And that was the game changer for me. That was the game changer. Usually in all of my previous roles, right? It was always one little past, you know, aspect of what I was doing. It was always like supply or -hmm. it was always Mm -hmm. like customer relationship management. But then finally getting that ability to manage both supply and demand and being able to understand what levers move certain metrics. That's when I got really excited about kind of high level operations and then went into the regional operations manager role towards the end of my time at Bungalow, where I managed the portfolios in Chicago, Seattle
1: and Portland. Hey, hey, wasn't that awesome? Hope you're enjoying it so far.
0: Yeah, and you better get ready. Because we didn't end the conversation there.
1: So stay tuned for part two of this striking conversation.
0: More mayhem coming.